I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, on the show this week, a couple of things. So slightly different episode format. The other week, we had a bonus podcast, which was an episode of Singles Club. So if you haven't listened to that, it's a format which normally pops up on the Patreon feeds. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, then head to patreon.com slash scuba official to get hold of that. But yeah, uh, it's a format which normally pops up there and is basically me reviewing 10 tracks in a fairly light-hearted and unserious <laughs> manner. So I do stuff like the Spotify Global Top 10 or the Viral Top 10 or whatever. Anyway, so that bonus podcast was one of those. And I've been meaning to do a Taylor Swift one as requested by Janet in the Discord. If you're not on the Discord, then head over to hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord to join us there. But it's not really a chart. So the request was to do the top 10 streamed Taylor Swift tracks, basically. But since I'm a Taylor Swift fan, it's like, it doesn't really fit into Singles Club. It's kind of like the fun bit of Singles Club is kind of slating tunes, really, if I'm completely honest. (laughs) So I decided instead of doing it as a Singles Club, to do it as a sort of addendum to a regular episode. So after the main conversation this week, I'm doing my Taylor Swift singles club thing. Basically, why do I love Taylor Swift? I'm going to try and find that out because I'm a really big fan, but I'm not like super familiar with a lot of her catalogue. There's like two or three albums, which I know pretty well and I love, really love. But there's loads more of it, which I'm, you know, not familiar with. And I had a look through the top 10 streamed tracks and I only know about half of them. So it should be quite fun to do that. So, yeah, that's what's coming up after my conversation with Tallman785, who is an artist you may be familiar with from his releases with us on Rhythm Nation 
and I've just played loads of his tunes on my sets over the years. But he's now working in music education and this is an area which I have some interest in because the last job that I had before I was able to quit my day job and do music full time was in educational research and as we discover in the conversation with Tallman785 this week, he's working on a project in schools which teaches maths through music. And the very last thing I did as a civilian, <laughs> as it were, was to run a research project on innovative ways of doing maths assessment and teaching maths in schools. So like in 2006 or something, this would have been like right up my street. <laughs> and yeah, I just wanted to get him on to chat about it and to chat about him as well, because he's an interesting guy with some great stories. He's previously a member of staff at Hard Wax. We talk about record shots, we talk about his journey into music, his background as a jazz guitarist. So we talk about theory in electronic music and the value of it or otherwise. That question we talked about at MJ Cole. And quite a lot of other stuff as well. So yeah, it's a short of an usual conversation, just about an hour or so, but is one that I think you're going to enjoy because he's, like I said, an interesting guy. So like I said, Taylor Swift after this, if you're not doing Patreon, which is totally fine, then leave us a review or a rating or if you listen to this podcast, follow the Spotify playlist, the link in the show notes. And as I mentioned before, you can join us in the Discord if you have anything to say about what we're doing here on the show right okay so i've been jabbering on for a bit too long i think so without further delay here is torment 785 torment 785 welcome to the show how are you doing sir i'm doing fantastic thanks for having me I'm going to call you Brian because that's like your actual name, if you don't mind. You can call me Paul. <laughs> It'd be weird to call me, yeah, so, but I could also call you Scoops. No, 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 please don't do that. <laughs> but maybe don't do that. <laughs> yeah, just call me Paul. Yeah, how you doing, man? It's been a while since we talked. Okay, so let's actually, let's try and do this in a way which is going to be listenable, shall we? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Can you just, um, for, for people who are not, aware i mean there's going to be definitely people listening to this who know your music but um just give me a kind of brief idea of your background and how you because you're from the u.s obviously yeah yeah i'm from actually i'm from kansas so it's basically the middle like the the buckle of the bible belt and that actually uh where i'm from has very little or i mean i guess my my connection to what i'm doing now is almost like nil <laughs> you know i mean I, I basically grew up around like you know uh like dad rock from like the 1970s and stuff like that i mean i was born in 78 and so i kind of grew up with like best of american rock hits um from the 70s and 80s yeah right nice so yeah so i mean i, I basically to to kind of uh put it in a in like a, a neat little package i basically um, spent a bunch of time in Kansas, and then I moved to Maine when I was twelve, and that's where I got into Steve, and that's where I got into Stevie Ray Vaughan, okay. and this this VH, legend, and the, yeah, in this VHS tape called Live at the El Macambo, and right. this this VHS tape was the thing that freaked me out 
because he was playing Voodoo Child Slight Return from Jimi Hendrix. And he just had this like amazing kind of, you know, vibe to him. And he basically like, like got me into playing guitar. I think the only the only white guy who's ever been able to play that track and do it justice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and it just, you know, just like his, his whole vibe really hit me. And so basically I got into playing guitar there and then I got seriously into into jazz and started to study like Wes Montgomery and Thelonious Monk and stuff like that and moved back to Kansas and studied jazz and moved to New York and got into playing jazz music there. So that was my like a very, very short encapsulation um, of kind of my early years of playing music. It had zero to do with electronic music at all. Yeah. I mean, how did you get into techno, get into what was, what was your route into electronic music then? You. (laughs) And the thing is, is that you're laughing, but you, you are. (laughs) And I don't know if I've ever told you this because we've hung out quite a bit and like, whatever, but maybe I just didn't want to be that guy to say that thing to the person. (laughs) (laughs) But it honestly was like going to substance. Right. Right. That, that, oh, okay. Well, hang on a second, then. Hang yeah. on a second. Because obviously, Substance was in Berlin, but you've just been talking about Maine and Kansas. So, like, what, what brought you to Berlin? What brought you to Europe? Right. So, basically, like, I was living in Manhattan at the time, and um, there's a really great falafel spot on, like, uh, West 4th Street uh, in, the, in the West Village called Mamun's Falafel. And I met a German girl there. And she asked me for a tissue. And I, and I kind of laughed and was like, Do you mean a napkin? <laughs> and a couple of months later, I ended up in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. You know, um, but it was it was super interesting. Just a, a, a quick point of my time in New York because my my time in New York was extremely formative um, for me. Also with like uh, uh, with like electronic music because I got into like soul jazz records. And um, I mean, I was a huge dub fan, like with King Tubby and all this kind of stuff. But they also started to release like Box of Dub and like the future sound of dub and like all this kind of like dubstep stuff that was coming out of London and um, at the time. And so that was kind of a, a, a way for me to slowly get into it. But I never really got into like the I never understood the physical aspect of electronic music until I came to Berlin and went to Bergheim and actually my very first real clubbing experience was at Substance watching you and a bunch of other people play. Wow. Okay. So what what had taken you to New York in the first place? Um I wanted to be really serious about playing jazz. I mean I was practicing I was practicing guitar eight hours a day or six you know six to eight hours a day and you know transcribing um, you know, Wes Montgomery uh, solos and Miles Davis solos and John Coltrane and like all this kind of like really classic, classic jazz stuff. And um, I was also into like Ikoi Mori and um, a lot of stuff from John, not really John Zorn, but John Zorn related type stuff. Mm-hmm. And um so I wanted to go there and kind of um, also B- Bill Frizzell was a huge influence on me and he was here like Paul Motion, Bill Frizzell, 
this whole area of, of like New York jazz was just fascinating to me. So I wanted to come there and be with it. And I ended up actually meeting and uh, being mentored under Ornette Coleman um, in New York. I met, I, I met him in a, in, I met him in a, uh, in a subway train. <laughs> Shit. Wow. Did, I saw him and I was like, wait a minute, that's Ornette Coleman. So I went to go and talk to him. <laughs> and I was like, man, can I like walk and talk with you for like five minutes? Is that cool? And he's like, yeah, sure. So he sat down actually with me uh, on the train station and basically like talk to me for an hour. I actually had to tell him like, dude, I actually need to go now. <laughs> <laughs> like I need to go. But I mean, basically just to, to, to kind of sum it all up, like being in New York was an ex extremely important time for me because it helped kind of, you know, it gave me a place, you know, being a, a misfit um, in, in a weirdo in Kansas, I found other misfits, weirdos, freaks and hippies in New York that I could kind of hang with. And then when I came to New York, I mean, excuse me, when I came to, to Berlin, when I met this girl, I found this, but in this totally different European context, there was just like, I just, I fell in love with it because I didn't know anything what was going on. Like everybody was speaking these different languages and they were all hanging out at the, at the river drinking wine and eating cheese and like speaking in hush <laughs> and speaking in hushed tones. And I was like, Oh my God, this is so wonderful. You know? Okay. But I mean, like, as you mentioned, like the dream of being a jazz guitarist was, was it still alive when you moved to Berlin? Because I mean, it's by the sound of things, and, you know, I, I went through the, the music education system and we're going to be talking about music education a lot in this conversation. That's where we're eventually going to get to. But, yeah. like, I guess accepting that you're not going to go pro at something is a big moment, right? So when did that happen? Well, the thing is, is that I never really considered myself to not be pro. Well, that, that's one way of dealing with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, like, not a good... Because the thing is, is that, like, I was always working um and and i was always not like super duper like um uh successful in the way that i was like playing and touring like eight months out of the year or whatever but i was always playing i was always being around stuff and that like gave me such joy sure that to me i had done what i came there to do and well, yeah, that's a sorry if I could just jump in there. That, that was, yeah, that's a different question, a different way of asking the question, I guess, is like because not everyone, you know, not everyone wants to be the global superstar. I mean, was that something that you actually ever wanted in, in that sense? I mean, like, I think I, I'd at that point I'd played um, on a number of like bigger stages, and it was obviously very like exciting. But I didn't want that my um, the kind of my my musical integrity, whatever that is, to be yeah, yeah. You know, like I just I didn't want to be doing. I didn't want to sell out as like a for you know as a gen as all the Gen Xers would say. You know, <laughs> like that cliche of the Gen Xers that don't want to sell out. <laughs> Right, yep. but, uh, but yeah, it's it's like it's a sad state of affairs, man. It's really it's it's hard to deal with, but I guess it's just like, you know, I just loved being in it, and so, um, you know, that that's what really excited me, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so but when you made it 
over to Europe. Did you continue your, well, to what extent did, did your music career with jazz continue? Because I have to say, like, I mean, I knew you were a guitar player and I knew, and I knew a bit of this when I met you, but I mean, my mm. knowledge of, of what you did when you got to Europe is, is basically zero. So explain to me how it developed once you came over. Well, I mean, when I came over, I was doing a lot of kind of like improvised noise stuff. Again, um, this uh, uh, this woman, Ikoe Mori, is was and is a huge influence on me. I mean, she really kind of um, she was part of this uh, a group called DNA, and um, like Brian Eno put out a, a compilation of like the No Wave New York stuff. And DNA was was part of it, and it's like this really noisy kind of like a disjointed atonal band, but like her um, her like electronic stuff that she did later, mostly with a laptop, is just really like it's it's hard to kind of like describe. And I saw her play a lot, and I wanted to continue to do that in my um in my own way through like guitar feedback stuff like i had a, like a jazz hollow body like a handmade hollow body jazz guitar but i would actually not use any um effects i would just use feedback and detuning the guitar and then do so and do solo guitar stuff so i was super into this when i came here and i was doing a lot of it and i actually met my best friend um doing this stuff but basically what happened was, is that uh, one of my friends, this guy named Greg Haynes, who's an amazing piano player, introduced me to not only Niels Frem, like personally, who I didn't even know at the time, but he also got me into like Frozen Border and Shed and like the Wax right. stuff, like the 1001, 2002, 3003, e you know, EQD. I mean, basically... A, a, a lot of my stuff outside of what I experienced when I went to go actually see like you playing, go to the substance parties was hanging out with my friend and him playing me white labels of Berlin techno stuff. And specifically that wax 3003 side B. I mean, that is as close to as a perfect of a track as it can get. And, that, and, and like hearing that and being kind of understanding like the, the minimalism of it really struck me and then feeling it, uh, feeling that the, the bass weights, as I guess maybe you would say in London in the dubstep scene is no joke. And then I and then basically, basically I went to to like three or four substance parties and then I went to a club night with Shed, DJ Nobu, Ben Clock, and DVS, or Ben Clock and Marcel Devon back to back. Nice. And um, I ended up staying there for about 22 hours. <laughs> and the track that got me was a Steve Rock mod remix of uh, the James Ruskin song Work. Oh, yeah. Okay. And when that came in, yeah, that, that, that basically, that, no, I was just going to finish this. Like, when that came in and it was like, chicka, 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 and like the bells coming in. And when the claps on the 4 4 hit, then I was in. Then there was no going back. So I was just going to ask you, like, what brought you to Substance? Greg. Okay. Yeah, and this what, guy could, Greg because, And he was into the music already. He knew what he was taking yeah. you to. Yeah. Right. 
Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know this. So for the benefit of anyone listening, I'm not seeking to, uh, to pick myself up when I ask this question, but tell me, <laughs> tell me about your, <laughs> tell me about sure your you experience are, of, <laughs> tell, no, I'm, I'm genuinely interested to totally, know yeah, the answer yeah, yeah. to this. Like what, tell me about your experience at Substance the first time you went, like, like, do you remember what year it was? I was actually looking at it um, on on the website. I couldn't remember exactly when it was. Or no, I do actually remember when it was. It was 2009, 2010. Yeah. Um, so, so something like that. And I mean, and I'm kind of kidding, uh, you know, w- with you about it that you're not trying to bring yourself up. But I mean, I know how much you care about the um, about the audience's like experience when you play. Yeah. And I think that kind of the empathy that you and people like you bring to somebody like me who's never experienced it is really something that is like really inspiring to me. And I try to bring whenever I play, you know, especially since I've been a DJ, like really caring for, and I think that carries over now into my work with kids. It's like, you know, that's an, an amazing thing, you know, because like if the people are having a good time, then you're having a good time. And so, I mean, I think that basically what it was is that like I was listening to these off kilter beats, like these non-techno kind of like vibes happening um, with this really heavy bass and then this really friendly crowd Right, yeah. Well, let me let me let me step back one moment sure. here, right? Because you mentioned this is essentially the first proper club you went to, and the Bergheim is a very it can be quite an intimidating place, actually. So, can very. you can you describe to me walk like walking in and what you felt when you just walked into the venue? Well, I mean, yeah, it's like for anybody that's that's been the kind of knowing if you'd. I mean, it's 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 difficult because I mean. There's so it's such a like it's almost like looking at a landscape like they they built it. So like as you're walking up, then the dance floor reveals itself if you're like as if you're like looking, you know, uh, if you're like going up a mountain and you turn around and all of a sudden this vista appears in front of you, you know, and I mean, and it sounds quite. Uh, like maybe slightly over dramatic, but it is very dramatic. <laughs> it's extremely dramatic, and everything kind of falls into or fell into place for me. And you know, watching somebody like Mala play and watching the concentration that he has and the grin that he has, and then these like deep red and blue and green colors slowly moving around not these like crazy weird like strobe lights that you get at some places but like slow moving yeah dark rich deep colors you know like uh you know then like reflecting off of the glistening sweat of the people around you it's like i never you know i never experienced it before and there's only then everybody had these crazy beautiful outfits and they were just like, yeah, I just, I was like, dude, I'm from Kansas. <laughs> what? I know cowboys in Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> what the fuck is this, you know? And and so, I mean, I think that, you know, the staff, the security was really beautiful. Nobody wears headphones or anything, so you don't know who works there. Right. 
You have no idea who works there. And that also adds so much to it. So it's like the combination of everything really led to this kind of, you know, like open vibe. I could just, I could just be a weirdo. I just remember screaming on the dance floor. I mean, not like, not like loud, loud, but just, just, you know, pumping my fists up in the air and just being like, yes, dude, yes. And, you know, and like, I'd never experienced that, you know, before. So I think that the combination of everything really, really worked. And I think that, you know, when you came in with that party, it was the right place at the right time. And it just, it just got me. Yeah, I think you're you're right. I've I've often reflected that we we got lucky with that exact thing being in the right place. Like the the people in the city were ready for it, the venue were ready for it, and we filled a gap that was waiting to be filled basically. And for a few years it was really really fun. One of the best things I've ever done in my life, for sure. It was just just great great thing to be a part of. Yeah, and I mean it's I I'll I won't keep on going too much about it, but it's, this is actually a perfect moment, if if I may be so bold as to just say thank you. Really, I mean it. Well, I mean it, man. You're, you're, you're more than welcome, man. You're more than welcome. It, it, mean, it means a lot that it means... It means a lot to me that it meant so much to you. Yeah. And, you know, that's what... I guess when you, when you put on a night and when you put on a party, I guess that's the ultimate of what you're trying to achieve, right? You're trying to stimulate emotions in people. And, you know, so that's, that's great. That's amazing to hear that, man. Like, I yeah. really appreciate it. So, um, so tell me about how this new uh, appreciation of electronic music then kind of took over your musical outlook because you quickly became you started making tunes and then you i remember you know that was how we first met is that you coming up and giving me tracks right yeah so i mean i guess it made sense for you as a musician just to start trying to make this music was it like that totally i mean i had to like uh be alone in an apartment by myself for a week and cry that was the first thing i have to do no, literally, because I had had such a, a high high, and then I came down and didn't understand what was happening. Wow! I mean, okay. it was it was that emotional. I was like, "What the fuck?" I mean, honestly, like, what happened to me? Like, because I like walked in there, somebody that, that kind of dug electronic music but wasn't into it, and then walked out. Was like, I have to go get Ableton now. Yeah, and you were like what? You were like thirty-two or something. Yeah, exactly. That sort of age, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's different, as you know. You form many opinions in your twenties. Like there's some formative shit happens. So when you get everything turned upside down at that age, oh, yeah, it must. I'm not surprised it made a big, you know, traumatizing effect on you, right? Very much so. Yeah, and I mean, it's just like I just couldn't. Like I just had a hard time. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah, it, it was it was in a way you could almost consider it to be violent because it just flipped everything on its head and it's like, okay, well then I guess everything is different from now. And the funniest thing is that even uh, for the next couple of years I, I like I bought Ableton and started to learn it and started to basically like um, you know, just make tunes in it would in whichever way possible that I could. And then I remember 
as I was doing this, I was also playing guitar uh, at the same time. And I actually got a gig at the, um, at the cantina at Berghain right. um, where I DJed dub music and then I played guitar as well at the same gig. So I would like jump back and forth and I was doing this improvised thing with this guy on a computer and without going into the details of it, basically the gig went horribly, like really it was, I didn't get paid like at all or maybe like 50 bucks. The, the, the actual like guitar stuff that I played was horrible. I didn't have fun DJing because nobody was dancing and it was like barely anybody there. And long story short, I was like, fuck guitar. This is bullshit. I am never doing this again. So basically my, my career as a guitarist ended at Berghain, like properly. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. And then I just basically was just like, all right, I'm full into this thing. I'm not going to pursue the guitar anymore. Even though, I mean, I like, I love, I love Bill Frizzell. Like, I don't know uh, if, are you familiar with Bill Frizzell that much? Nope. He is probably one of my most favorite guitar players in the world. And it's beautiful and super melodic and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I still love this stuff, but I just, as far as performing and creating, yeah, I mean, like, you know, uh, electronic music is just kind of like full on. Do you still play guitar? No. For fun? No. Really? No. Wow. No, I, I, I'm... I am pained to do it, although I will do it if people ask me. That's that's pretty mad, right? Because you obviously spent so long. It's got to be a, I guess it's a difficult thing to to mentally process, right? Because that's kind of what I was getting at with my my question about quote unquote going pro. Sure. Like, do you, do you find it a kind of slightly sort of oppressive thing psychologically? I find playing guitar oppressive. Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I just like it's it's weird because I just don't I I don't find any freedom within like um what I can do, you know. I feel like I did I mean, you know, I studied music theory and, you know, and all this kind of stuff for a long time, so I was really like on the inside and outside of it. Like I could sing the stuff that I was transcribing on paper and you know sing it backwards and stuff and so like then you know being in, in electronic music it just kind of opened up this different this new door for me that um has uh yeah it just was like a different thing that i just wanted to focus on yeah i mean the, the kind of issue of theory in electronic music is an interesting one isn't it i talked about it a lot with well on the on the episode i did with mj cole because mm. he's a i mean he's got a music degree and like knows it all you know all that stuff and we were kind of like going back and forth on yeah. how useful it is and whether it can be sometimes can be maybe it's a barrier and that's often what the kind of argument is with people who people who haven't learned it or are quite often like no i don't want to learn it because i don't want to you know i don't want to have my brain put in a certain direction i mean where do you come down on that question yeah, I, for me, I find it extremely useful, um, and I am very happy that I learned it as and got as deep into it as I did, like mo like modal theory, basically. And it's interesting, like when I was studying with Ornette Coleman, 
um, in New York. When he was younger, he could play Charlie Parker solos from beginning to end. You know, he studied it and he could do it verbatim. And um, then he went on to do his own thing. So it's like, if you like learn the structure and then break that structure, um, or, you know, what, maybe not break it, but, you know, if, if you like do something else, you can always go back to it to make something really kind of melodic because I find melody to be, um, and, it, you know, hearing something that's, um, like one of my biggest heroes for the past while has been Niels Fram. Mm. And I just, I can't get enough of, of listening to him play piano and do stuff. Even his techno stuff or his, like his electronic stuff is really beautiful, but just him playing a piano, like you can't really do that without like knowing the theory of it and have it make so much sense. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 There's, there's no getting around that. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, I just like, I love that. And I think being able to make sense of things like tuning a bass line to a kick drum, you know, and then like, and then being able to like tell whether it's like two cents off or three cents off. And then, you know, maybe wanting it to be three cents off um, from like, uh, you know, it's just, so you have, so I mean, I, I think that stuff is really useful and I encourage that. And that's one of the things that I'm, trying to do with with my with uh with education stuff which we'll talk about but um i'm really a big fan of learning some kind of music theory yeah absolutely i am too and i i do sort of roll my eyes when people say oh no 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 i don't need it or i don't want it it's a sort of thing like basically it's like it's knowing how it works yeah. you know it's like knowing how something works and it's the same with grammar in writing, you know, and like... I was going to say. Right, yeah. One of my biggest regrets is like in my sort of education, like in the British education system, they stopped teaching grammar in like the 1970s. And oh, wow. as a result, like my knowledge of, of English grammar is fucking terrible. And it, <laughs> and part of the, a big part of the reason why English people don't speak foreign languages is because we don't learn English grammar. So it's that much harder oh, to understand... Uh, how the how the, you know, the the mechanics of another language work, right? So it's like it's so fucking dumb, and yeah, don't get me started on that. Well, I have <laughs> I have started. <laughs> no, but that's but it's it's like just just real quickly, like it's super interesting that you bring that up because like you know in my school right now we're studying community we're studying communication, and like if you know how to put things together, then you can communicate with people whether it be through a language like uh, English or German, because I speak German, or like an, uh, a language like music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 100%. 100% agree. So, okay, yeah. So let's let's talk about your journey into education and what you're doing now, because I'm interested in the in music education as a, as a general thing. So just t tell me about what you're doing now and, and um, where you've got to at this point. Well, I mean, I started to teach guitar when I was 18. And so I all, and then I basically never stopped teaching guitar and I was doing it privately. And I mean, for a long time, I really kind of enjoyed it because it gave me the freedom to just, just teach guitar and then, you know, go out and listen and play gigs and stuff like that. And so 
you know, but then I started to really kind of resent the, not the lessons themselves, but everything surrounding it because I was just fucking broke all the time and just felt like shit, you know, because I was like, I mean, yeah, I'm kind of like just doing music stuff, but what does it mean when I get home and I don't feel like, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, enthused about like actually making music when I get home. So like, what's the point of it? And so after kind of a lot of soul searching, um, and trying a couple of different jobs, I actually ended up quitting for a while and, um, uh, worked at a couple of record stores which was a really kind of amazing experience. But like, I kind of- Let me, I hang on a sec, let me me stop you there because I've never worked at a record store. Uh Um, So tell me what it's like working at a record store. I'm I'm interested to know this from someone who's done it firsthand. Dude, if somebody, if anybody's out there that's listening that is really serious about like doing music for a while, and you have a chance to work for a couple of years in a record store, then like do it. Like, I think it's just, it's beautiful. It's like, it's hard work. It's kind of shitty sometimes, but it's being able to just go. I mean, I would just give people like 20 records and they would come back with 10 that they would buy. <laughs> and then they, and then they would come back. And I mean, I would just like, I just, busted out like so many records and I just did it by like by sight in a heartbeat. I just knew what was what was up, you know, and and just learning about different labels and who's like on that and who's with that. And it's and then also I think not only just like the music aspect of it, but the social aspect of the hang. Learning how to hang with people. Like learning how to deal with quote unquote famous people. And, you know, like feeling that out and getting that nuance because also like being back in the club, like in Berghain and being around all these crazy, again, in quotes, famous people, they just want to hang out too, you know? And so it's like, if you can learn the social like nuances of like club culture in a record store and then translate that into a club thing, it really makes the whole thing a lot more like pleasurable because you can kind of all of a sudden hang. So I think outside of being really enthusiastic about listening and being around music all the time, and I mean, I'm a social, like I'm a very social person. My dad was actually a preacher. Right. He was, he was a preacher in the church. And so like, he just loved being around people. And I kind of got that too. And like, I have, um, you know, that like, uh, is, am I using the word loquacious, right? When, when you like to talk, you know, like this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This loquacious nature of just being around. And so I think also if somebody is, is a bit younger and has a chance to do that and just learn how to be with people and hang out and be a social, like, there's a lot to be uh, gained from that. Yeah, amazing. So sorry, I interrupted you. No, I mean, I, I think I, I think that was basically it. I mean, you know, working in the record stores was was really cool and also like a little bit dark sometimes because I think that okay, then I guess I'll basically end with this as far as the record stores go because 
with them, I also saw a quite a dark side of not even the record business, but just like business of people that were just pissed off at others being in their club when people didn't, when they didn't want to be, if they weren't cool enough to be in their club. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just like, man, what are you doing? Like, why? Like, I'm the, the more the merrier. And also, like, you know, some people that I worked with, they would ask me, like, Brian, why are you, like, giving them these, like, Taylor Swift records or, like, Beyonce records? <laughs> um, you know, when they're coming in, like, because they're asking for, like, a birthday present. And I'm like, well, first off, I fucking love Beyonce and Taylor Swift. Okay, first off, <laughs> let's just get this straight, okay? But second off, they're coming in here because they want to get something that means something to somebody else or to them. And who am I to be this holier-than-now thing just because I know who Ikaway Mori is or just because I know who, like, uh, you know, who, like, who Substance is, like DJ Pete... You know, not many people know who that is outside of this little bubble. But if they want to come in and get like, uh, you know, a Bob Dylan record, I'm going to give them a Bob Dylan record and be happy about it because they're happy about it. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, that that's the kind of legend of uh, the snooty record store employee is, is pretty well storied, right? And it absolutely exists. <laughs> it's there for a reason, right? Totally. And I felt that myself and I was like, man, this is bullshit. Like, I just want to hang with people. And so, like, you know, I could have kept my record store gig, but I unfortunately could not deal with the pay that was involved. So that was the other unfortunate thing that there's no really getting around, I guess, you know. Sure. So, yeah, you were, you were telling me, though, about how you eventually made it into education. Yeah. So I was, you know, after taking a little bit of break of, of teaching, and um, not doing that working in the record stores, I basically took a bunch of stock of what I wanted to do in my life. I was like, how do I, wh what do I actually want to do? Because just putting energy all the time into music put a lot of stress on the music and on something I was passionate about and something that I loved. And I really kind of think that that's a real shame um, and I see that in a lot of people and, and, and I saw that in a lot of people and I didn't want that. So I said to myself, okay, what can I do? And so I basically, okay, well, I could speak German pretty well. Like I'm at like a B2C1 level. And so I could go to school learning how to be a teacher's assistant. And at first I taught in kindergartens and I wasn't really like I was playing guitar a little bit or whatever, but um, I got into the school and started to work in a kindergarten and realized that I actually really liked the work and I could uh, really kind of deal with it. And it's also like steady work. Yep. And that kind of like um, stability really um, meant a lot to me. And I think that like if before I go on about my own thing, if there's anybody out there that's kind of listening and wondering about, oh, well, I, should I get a day job or should I kind of, I don't know, like there's just a lot of pressure for me to go pro. You know, it's just like doing a job for me personally was one of the best things I could have ever done 
to keep my energy super alive for making music and finding different energies, you know, because like I also not outside of the, you know, work stuff. I love to make a good espresso. <laughs> right. It has nothing to do with electronic music at all, you know, or like cooking and so, you know, so I mean, finding different ways of like expressing energy, I think helps keep that energy and passion for music really there. So basically I started to do this like work in kindergartens. And so it was like a three to six year olds. And I realized that I was kind of mentally not really there and like emotionally there, but like mentally I wanted something else. And so um, the, the company that I work for actually has an elementary and secondary school here in Berlin um, that I uh, could transfer to. And I got there and realized that, I mean, since I've been using Ableton, I got really into computers and really into using computers, not coding, but just basically learning Ableton and being digitally competent, which is, if I might say just for a moment, in Germany is... It's something to behold, the dig the digital incompetence. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. It's, oh it's amazing, God. isn't it? It's amazing. Like having lived there for a good few years, it's just like right. just the, the way the government works is just like nothing's online. It's crazy. <laughs> just it's mind blowing, like how inefficient it is. <laughs> German efficiency, dude. Yeah, right. Exactly. And like I go to school now with, I mean, it's. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll 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 leave that part out. Because, but no, actually, I won't. Because, like, it's like learning how to use computers and the internet and digital things is the way of the future. It's the way that like you're going to actually get jobs and be able to like learn how to like you know move in this world. And um, when I came to the school, I was one of the only people that was really like. Um, fluent in this language in this like digital language right. and um so i already was using um like uh, uh, this stuff a lot where a lot of other people were still trying to figure out how do i print something wow how do i you know like i'm like what do you mean print i'm not it's no what, <laughs> yeah exactly 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 you know, and so in, in, and so basically just moving on with it to get to kind of where uh, this kind of eureka moment, I had this, um, um, I have to write like uh, in German, like Facharbeit, I have to write like a thesis to end my education. And I was thinking about how I can, how I can incorporate electronic music into this. And I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, isn't actually programming electronic music and just like a drum machine, for example, learning math. Mm. You know, how, how, do you, how do you make a 4-4 kick drum? You put it on the 1-5-9-13. So then making an even kick drum beat means programming odd numbers. So then wait a minute, that's math. And what do kids really need help with in school? It's music and math. I mean, in German, like if you look at the studies and kind of trends and whatever, music and math is really lacking. So I was like, if I can get the kids to use Machina or Ableton Push, which I actually have now, 
um, in the school, and I'll go into kind of a more of like a, an, a little bit of an equipment list because it's really amazing. Um, we like we use the Ableton Push at my school to teach the kids math. Wow, that's that's cool. Because that's always the issue with teaching kids math, isn't it? Because it's just it, numbers seem boring, right? So it's trying to get a way of making it engaging, right? Yeah, and and I mean, and I thought about it, and I was like, well, w- wait a minute. If I actually put together a presentation where I talk about the importance of um, of learning math and doing it through music through a different lens of electronic music, well, then like this could really be a thing. And so I basically talked with the people in my school and they basically uh, like, thankfully one of the things that Germany does have is like money for, for the digitalization because they're trying to finally fucking get around to it. And so they basically got us at the school two pairs of Atom A7s, an Exxon 96 mixer, two Denon CDJs, uh, four copies of Ableton Suites, uh, an Ableton push and an audio and like an SSL audio interface. And we have that at the school with a dedicated room where we can use that every day and can visualize the math behind electronic music. And I'm going to be um, and in uh, February, I'm going to be finished with my thesis that I'm writing about this is basically, you know, how how music and math can be um, taught to kids through the use of electronic music. That's super cool. So hang on a sec. First of all, what kind of a school are you in? What, what age group are we talking about here? It's uh, first to 13th grade. Um, and what is, what is the music curriculum like as opposed to the mass curriculum? What kind of facilities do they have there and what do they learn when they do music? A conga and an out-of-tune piano. <laughs> And a pocket calculator, man. And printed out worksheets. What age do kids have to do music up until? Because I'm presuming like there's uh, there's mandatory classes until you get to a certain point where you have to specialise and that's where most people drop out, right? I'm guessing. So what, what age is that? Yeah, I think that that's around... 10th or 11th grade i mean with with a company with the school that i work for i'm not exactly sure where it stops Hmm. um because i mean yeah those those like focused uh uh, classes at the end do kind of like make it so other ones aren't as important but i mean music and math basically go throughout most of the curriculum right and just comparing it to your experience as a music student in mm-hmm. school, you know, as, as well as obviously, I mean, obviously went way past school, but like how motivated were you by the education that you received in school musically in the States? Because I mean, like what I guess I would hope is that in the sort of 40 odd years that have maybe 30 years that have passed, that things would have got a bit more progressive and like things would be, there'd be a bit more emphasis on creativity and that sort of stuff. But like, what are the differences that you see there between your experience and the experience that kids have now in Germany? Close to zero. Really? Wow. That's amazing. And that's the, and that's kind of the problem is that it's just, I mean, it's, you know, being a teacher is an extremely difficult job, right? Like, and I mean, so it's, you know, I mean, that's definitely nothing to, um, uh, to kind of, 
it's it 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 means a lot. It's, and that's one of the reasons why I'm a teacher's assistant and not a teacher. Is because actually being a teacher and doing all those extra things around just the thing that you want to focus on is just so intense. Um, and I mean, I got lucky when I was in school because I had Tony Baffa and Gil Donatelli. They're two guys that, that that taught me, and if they're if they're listening, thank you because they really <laughs> encouraged me to play guitar. They saw something in me, and um, so I mean, I even went, when I went to college to study jazz, like I was doing all these different courses that I just wasn't interested in, and I just wanted to play jazz, and so I just basically locked myself in in a practice room for um, for six hours a day and played and skipped classes. And the thing is, is that these kids are missing now, these kids are missing excitement. They're, they're missing engagement to use a, to use a, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. a marketing term, right? Like engagement, but they, they're, they're missing something to like hook them into it. And electronic music, whatever genre you want to pick, electronic music is the music that they're listening to. They are not listening to, because most schools have, a conga and a guitar and a piano that's out of tune. Well, that's that's exactly it. It's exactly it, isn't it? Because like when I was a kid and my mum was trying to make me learn pieces on the piano, you know, and she got nowhere because I didn't want to be playing the music that I was being asked to play because I didn't want to listen to it. But as soon as I picked up a guitar, an electric guitar in particular, suddenly it was like, mm. fuck yeah, I'll play this all day. Like, yeah, I, totally. you know what I mean? Like, drag me away from it, right? Like, and it's the same now, presumably, for a kid. I mean, it was actually the same for me when I was first able to use music tech because I was lucky enough to go to a school for the last two years, like the high school where there was a little music tech lab. There was a couple of synths and like, you know, a sequencer. So I could oh, just wow. sit in there and, and like, you know, immerse myself in it. And I absolutely did that. Like I spent hours. I was the only kid in my year who really, you know, who caught the bug. But I really, really caught the bug. I would skip classes to go there. Yeah. My music teacher would kind of look the other way, pretend not to know that I was skipping other classes, yeah, you totally. know, shit like that. Like, because yeah. she was like, she couldn't believe someone was so into this shit, you know. She was like, wow, an enthusiastic student. But yeah, it's, it's crazy. But listen, the exact program that you're doing, your thesis, mm-hmm. tell us about that in, in detail. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I what I wanted to do is find a way for kids to be able to visualize the math intrinsically involved within music, and uh, like underscore like the 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 other way, um, like the other way around. How it just basically it, like that there is like um, that you can use math to write music and music to write math. And I think that I found a really great, um, uh, a really great way to visualize that. First off, through the Ableton Push, um, and um, then basically, you know, start with with drum kits, like with with, with like a with like a drum rack, and basically showing kids. Hey, listen. Here's a kick drum. Here's a four-four pattern, and here's something else. Just record stuff and just punch. Make make a blue light go on. Make another blue light go on. Make four red lights go on. And so, I mean, that's to 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 put it really simply. The 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 concepts behind what I'm doing is 
make you know make a light uh, go on with a pretty color, and that basically gets everybody going because who doesn't like pretty colors and lights blinking? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I noticed that because I even did it with uh, with preschool kids, with kids that are like two years old. I've gotten them like held them up to the push, and they just punch at it, and they're just like, "Wow, like bleh," you know. And then I have you know eleventh graders who are super into like mixing stuff and moving it around, but then as soon as like you know they have some kind of you know chord in there from a synth with like the older kids, you can basically just like solo that chord, look at it, see which uh, notes are being played, and then say, okay, so I have four notes that are being played. What are the spaces in between those notes? And then we're going to translate those spaces in between those notes into numbers. And then we're going to turn that into an addition or a subtraction problem, or actually turn them into both an addition and a subtraction problem, solve that addition and subtraction problem, and then flip them around again and then make that a different chord. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting way of thinking about it is is pretty cool so what i mean what do the kids think of this they're really into it like i mean it's um you know the the enthusiasm level is quite high although it it is it is um a bit daunting <laughs> right You know, I mean, it's a lot to like take in because I mean keep in mind we don't just have the ables and push we have the XO96, you know, we have a Denon DJ6000 with a touch screen and like eight pads where you can do slicing and rolling and all this kind of different stuff. But the thing is, is that they can scratch on a DJ platter and make it go, brr, 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 you know, and like they see, you know, blue and green colors. But then as we're counting, like, you know, when, when we're listening to like, the, you know, that Wax 3003 stuff, like it's when you count it from where instruments come in and out, it's super like exact. Like it's like 3264, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like you, you can count exactly where something's going to come in. And I do that with the kids. I'm like, okay, so counts are like one, two, two. And so we're doing math without even thinking about it. And then I'm like, okay, then you bring in the next track and you count in that same way. And then when you take out the bass, then two, then in both tracks, something change, something changes and you get that third song within two of them. Right, 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 right. Right. And so it's like actually like using mathematical thinking creates interesting like DJ sets or can. Not necessarily, but it can do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was actually having this conversation with someone the other day actually about how to structure a techno record and, and how important or not those sorts of uh, 64, 32, 16 bar structures are you know and um 
thinking about DJing, like, yeah, what, what's he done it for a while? It's almost like you do it without thinking, right? Yeah. You just kind of know where the beat is, but that takes a lot of practice, right? And that, that's just become some second nature thing. And then there's the whole thing about, you know, how the vast majority of, of dance music and techno is pretty boring in terms of time signatures right mm, yeah. <laughs> it's like this um but, but by necessity right sure yeah. like i remember my uh in fact going back to um going back to school i remember having a the guy who ran the music tech lab was some older he was an opera singer actually who just had the hobby of like you know he just got interested in music tech and he was and he was like admonishing me for for you know, making these kind of four four techno tunes, and 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 then, but then like thought about it, it was like, well, actually, you wouldn't want to be like waltzing around the dance floor, would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, listen, man. This has been really interesting. Mm. Um, I've got a couple more questions. Sure. Like, just regarding music education generally, we've touched on it a little bit. Like, like how important do you think it is for kids to learn music, just generally? Um. I'll answer that one in in one moment, but there's one other thing that I uh, is also like because I, I know that you have your Spotify playlist for for some kind of like off kilter, extremely mathematic techno stuff that I think is really beautiful. Uh, there's a sleep archive um, uh, locked groove on Trezor Records uh, from his Man That Died in the Street oh, yeah. series. But it's got like it's got like a, a three four over four or like six eight over four, and you can really get super weird and mathematical with that. And I mean, it's it's cool. But it, uh, I just wanted to just put that in there because I love Sleep Archive. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Oh man, yeah. The and like the um, but it, uh, it. Anyways, how important do I think it, it is for kids to learn music? I mean, I think that um, for a lot of people, let, let me put it like this. I, have a, I would have a hard time having a conversation with somebody that didn't have any kind of connection to music. You know I mean? I, I just think it's so kind of intrinsic in so many people's lives that I think that having at least a tertiary, tertiary uh, knowledge of music and at least kind of some appreciation um, is quite vital because I mean, you know, if, if I didn't, if I didn't move to New York and then meeting a German in New York and then coming to Germany and then now I'm lucky enough to, you know, I have a family and I have a career that's based on this stuff that encompasses many things other than music. Um, you know, I, I don't know if, if I if I would have stayed in Kansas and for a lot of people, they, they're happy in Kansas and that's fine, but I wouldn't be. And so I think that music can really be this, this thing that really brings, you know, that really with, without kind of going into cliche, it brings, it brings people together. It's like being around foodies. Like I know you're really into food, right? And having an appreciation for really good food and learning about what good food it is. Or for me, I love espresso. I have, an es I have a like really nice espresso machine here at home because I love espresso. And so like having appreciation and getting a, a sense of, um, of the kind of 
not fi- not finite be it but to having a, um, an appreciation and, and, and a taste for um, uh, what really well-crafted um, what things, whether it be music or food or art. Yeah, it's having an appreciation, right? Knowing what a good example of something is, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, it would just be nice if like everyone just knew why they like something a little bit more than just it sounds good. Anyway, last last question. Yeah. Just going back to like the the system in in Germany. Do you see a possibility that the way education is taught and taken seriously? Do you see that that, that might improve at any point, or do, what is the direction? Do you think? I think the direction is wanting to improve, but not sure how. It's it's weird because I'm the kind of like almost like I'm so kind of entrenched in the German culture because I've been here for like 16 years or 15 years or something like that. And in order for things to change, it's just like it's turning around, a, a you know, a, um, uh, like oil, uh, oil tanker, right? <laughs> an oil tanker. Yeah, exactly. And so it but the thing is, is that, you know, at the school that I'm at, they were immediately excited and put together, you know, this, this, um, you know, this, uh, you know, package of equipment that I could use to teach this. And it's like in this big school that I work in, like I'm the one that has the, 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 like the ability to like actually use this stuff and it's not being taught. And so I think that, you know, I really am passionate about like sharing this to people and getting this, you know, this idea out that, you know, we can use these, um, you know, these instrument, these instruments, which, um, you know, are very like in German, you would say like Zeitgenügisch, like um, uh, uh, contemporary and exciting for kids, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, I could use this on my TikTok channel. And it's like, yeah, yeah. like, think about what, the, like, one of the things that I love about what I'm learning in school and what I want to continue to be doing is putting the children um, and, you know, whether it's the, the children on the dance floor at your club, um, you know, when I was there at the first substance party or the children that I'm working at with now putting them in the center and trying to figure out what, what they need because, you know, like you could inspire them to be, the next person to kind of bring things forward. And I think that, um, you know, when more people actually kind of see this concept that, you know, I'm bringing, which without sounding too self-important, I actually do think it's quite, you know, a, 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 a good way forward and a positive thing because it is pushing two things that people really kind of need in their life because if they're not good at math, how are you going to pay rent? You know, yeah, yeah. like, and, you know, how are you going to pay your taxes? And these things need to happen if you want to like, you know, live like a, you know, a, 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 a decent life. And like, that's what I want to really give, you know, I want to give that to my son and I want to give that to other kids that who are sorely lacking that. I mean, also we have kids from the Ukraine. We have, a, we have 20 some odd kids from the Ukraine that came in. Wow to our school just after the war broke out. And then we have another 20 some odd kids that are from, um, that are from Afghanistan. 
Wow. Right. That I'm that I'm that I'm working with as well. And it's like seeing, you know, these kids coming from war-torn countries coming in and then all of a sudden they're looking at like this friggin' DJ mixer that they have at Bergheim at their school, you know, like <laughs> You know, and then they get to go and have, you know, three square meals a day and like a salad bar and all these kind of things, you know, and it's like, I, I, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that like, it's hard to turn around this oil tanker, but I think that, um, you know, there's a slow realization that, you know, working with these digital tools, um, especially with something like Ableton Live, I mean, I don't, dis full disclosure, or disclosure in general, I don't work for Ableton Live. This is there's no payment involved. There's no advertisement. I just love what they do. It's it's an amazing thing, and um, you know, people use different uh, kinds of you know tools, but I find Ableton to be an amazing thing. And you know, for kids to get an idea about how to actually use uh, in a D, uh, like a digital audio workstation that where they could actually produce something is really exciting and it's just not being used it's not being uh, used very much right now and that's something that i want to help kind of change in the educational system so yeah i'm i'm really positive about it that's great man and i think i think you can be yeah man you can be proud of what you're doing for sure it sounds awesome so yeah thanks for doing it man this has been a lot of fun great to talk to you yeah thanks for having me that was Tormen785. Yeah. I was going to use that conversation initially as a sort of bonus pod during the pledge drive that we did in the last couple of weeks for Patreon members or to try and get new Patreon members. And if you want to sign up, then patreon.com slash official. But it was a longer conversation I anticipated. And even though I wasn't treating it as a full episode when I went into it, I think it justifies itself because we did talk about some really interesting things and we got into some areas which we haven't talked about too much on the show before so yeah brian is a cool guy and a great musician and yeah i just enjoyed it it was good he has some interesting things to say he's got a great voice as well that kind of kansas twang to it okay as i mentioned at the top there's two halves to this episode and the second half is taylor swift singles club so I've been a big fan of Taylor Swift basically since the 1989 album I hadn't heard a single track before that but there's a few tunes on that album which really connect with me like emotionally and to see it feels a little bit weird saying that because Taylor Swift is Taylor Swift right and any kind of global star like that I'm sort of instinctively suspicious of but for some reason I allow myself to kind of go there with Taylor Swift. And I don't know, I haven't really got a huge amount of insight as to why that is. I think it's something to do with her voice. It's something to do with the kind of, I don't know, I'm actually not sure. I think what we should probably do is just do the 10 tracks and maybe in the process of doing them, I'll be able to give you some insight into why I like her music because that is a motivating factor <laughs> for me to do it because I just don't really know why I like it. But yeah, okay. Anyway, so in the normal singles club tradition, 10 tracks, we're doing the 10 most streamed Taylor Swift tracks ever. I've had a quick look at the list. I know some of them, but I definitely don't know all of them. 
And Singles Club is always better when I don't know the tunes because I'm just able to react in the moment. And that's what makes it fun. I don't think I'm going to like all of these tunes. I'm fairly sure there's going to be at least one which I'm sniffy about. But also there's at least one which I think is amazing. And I'll try not to get too gushy about, <laughs> about that one. But anyway, let's just kick off, shall we? So I'll play like 15 seconds of each one just so you know what I'm listening to if you're not a Taylor Swift fan. And then, yeah, I'll give you my quick take on whether I like it or not. The other rule is I've got the duration of a track and no longer than that to look up any info about it. And like I said at the top of the show, I'm not massively familiar with the catalogue in its entirety. And obviously there is all the kind of new versions that have been recorded, like the Taylor's version versions of her older stuff because of that incident, the kind of uh, argument with her previous lay learner manager or whatever. I didn't really follow it that closely, to be honest, but I'm fairly sure we won't be encountering any of the Taylor's version stuff on this chart. Anyway, let's just do it, right? So I've got actually got the uh, streaming figures as well. These are accurate to a week or so ago, I think, or a couple of weeks ago. So track entitled We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together from the Red album, which has currently got 980 million streams. So let's take a listen to this. Okay, right, so that's just a great pop song. Obviously, I recognize the chorus, but definitely this isn't one of the ones that I know well. Like Reds is an album that I, yeah, I don't know that well at all. So 2012, this is from, and it's co-produced by Max Martin and co-written by Max Martin. So it really has that like super, super commercial pop uh, sheen to it. And so many kind of little tropey uh, touches, tricks which make it seem quite throwaway, actually. And the song doesn't need it at all. Like the song is a, it's just a great sort of Taylor Swift conversational piece of, uh, yeah, kind of teenage angst, I guess, kind of thing. I mean, that's kind of, that's the brand, right? And I think, I think that's why I like it. It's got that kind of teenage, but quite authentic teenage sounding. It's like, it's almost like a 80s teen movie you know, and lots of the stuff, lots of her stuff has that kind of feel to it, has that kind of emotional beat to it. But the production here, yeah, it's, um, it does sound 10 years old, right? And actually the, um, the intro has got this kind of cut up acoustic guitar, which is a direct ripoff of that Madonna track off the album. I can't remember the name of it, but the, the album that Mirway, I think the guy was called, the French guy, produced i think it was music there's a track on on that music album which basically does the same thing and it's a this is a, just an obvious rip off of that but yeah good but pretty bubblegum well i mean the the uh the production anyway unnecessarily bubblegum and i think i think the general direction of travel with her stuff since this is it's become progressively less dumb production wise due to whoever she's been working with or whatever, or maybe she's, you know, I don't know the degree to which she takes charge of the production stuff. I mean, she definitely does most of the heavy lifting with regards to the writing, but 
the production is another matter. Whatever, this is a key feature of Singles Club in that I am really ignorant about <laughs> almost everything I talk about on these episodes. So just notwithstanding that. Right, number nine. Okay, also from Red, track entitled I Knew You Were Trouble. And it's got 1.06 billion streams. Right, that was pretty shit, to be quite honest. 2012 was like peak commercial dubstep era, wasn't it? And that's got a really bad sort of dubstepy chorus. I mean, it didn't go full like wobble, but like the halftime drums and stuff. Ooh, yeah, that was not good at all. And it really just reeked of kind of like super producer doing the whatever's cool at the time kind of thing so yeah max martin and shellback were the co-producers on that and ugh, yeah i don't think that was good at all in fact it was pretty pretty bad well okay i mean maybe this is going to be the low i thought i mean actually to be honest like in addition to production the the vocal was quite bad as well like in the in the the verses some pretty clumsy lyrics it's pretty just yeah not not good at all um phrasing and just yeah i mean i guess the the chorus is i mean yeah i don't know definitely nowhere near as good as that first one anyway lyrically yeah bad really bad okay well let's hope this is the uh the bottom maybe there's going to be some better stuff coming up well actually i think it's a good chance it isn't going to be the bottom because there is one on here which I don't know what it sounds like but I'm particularly concerned about um, okay number eight and I haven't heard this one either I'm just looking at this I actually haven't heard almost all of these there's only three of these that I have heard well actually to be fair I definitely did know the first one anyway this is called lover and it is the title track from the album of 2019 so let's give this a go Right. So that obviously sounds completely different. And seven years later, after that Red album, working with Jack Antonoff on the buttons. And okay, I don't really like the sound of the production on that track. It sounds really, I don't know, it sounds quite plastic. I mean, it's obviously a sort of live band recording, but They've managed to make it, whoever mixed it, I don't know. I just I just didn't like the sound of it. Like and maybe I think like this album is quite varied and there's some like electronic y stuff, and maybe they're trying to bridge the gap there. So it's haven't gone full sort of uh organic sounding. I haven't gone like full kind of scratchy. And I don't think that really serves it too well, just in terms of the sound of the records. Like the drums are, you know, sort of like sort of overdriven toms and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm being really picky here, I realise. But yeah, didn't really grab me production-wise at all. I mean, with regards to the song, halfway through and I was like, fuck, this is quite boring. 
and I'm not super imaginative. But then the middle eight hits and it really makes the song, the middle eight. It's got this sort of modulation in it, which really gives you something different and really adds a lot to the whole thing. Like it's a brief key change and really, yeah, lovely and just gives it this kind of different harmonic edge. And then when it goes back to the chorus, you think, okay, right. So this is, yeah, this makes sense now. Prior to the to middle eight, you're just kind of like, could be anything, you know? And it's kind of just like chugging along in that kind of, so yeah, six, eight kind of swingy high school sort of ball in the 1950s kind of <laughs> kind of vibe. But yeah, like I said, when the middle eight hits and you get that key change, or like, it's not really a key change, like a modulation in the chord sequence, that really makes it. And it made it much more of a, like arresting listening experience because before that I was just like yeah it's quite a boring song with quite boring production but that took me out of like just being bored with the production so much better like significantly better than the uh, number nine we never give uh, ratings on Singles Club I mean the, the uh, Fact Magazine video which inspired <laughs> Singles Club I, I was actually made to give ratings to tunes but I haven't been doing it so not going to start now anyway um yeah that was all right no i know it was, it was better than all right because when it got to the last chorus i was like yeah it was it was it was good it was good okay we're up to number seven and it's called you belong with me from the fearless album and this has 1.091 billion streams i didn't actually say that the previous track has 1.074 billion streams um <laughs> I mean, these are decent numbers. Not amazing. I mean, actually, I mean, a billion streams is a billion streams, isn't it, really? <laughs> right, let's do this. From the Fearless album, which is an early one, actually. I think it might be the second album. So this is going to sound a lot different as well. Okay, let's, let's, let's do this. Okay, so this was the track that she won the Grammy for. I think it was for the best video when Kanye did his thing at the ceremony, which I think was the first I ever heard of Taylor Swift. I really don't like Kanye West. I think he's a fucking dick and have done so. Maybe I think maybe that was the kind of aggravating event. And maybe this is maybe this is what set the kind of wheels in motion for me not liking Kanye too much and actually liking Taylor Swift quite a lot because that just seemed like a bullshit thing to me like Kanye saying <laughs> what was it he said oh it was about Beyonce he said Beyonce should have won right and like respect the artistry or some shit and I'm not going to say anything about Beyonce but I mean Taylor Swift's better than Beyonce okay <laughs> Um, lots of you are hating me for saying that, I realise. Whatever. Whatever. So that's that's what this song is. And it's like very, very different, obviously, to the previous the previous track and the other the other tracks, the other three tracks. This was like Taylor Swift when she was still quite country, I guess. I guess well this was the sort of breakthrough album, right? I guess this was, this was the album where she got off country radio 
and became a pop star. And this has kind of got a sort of almost like a power pop element to it. Like the big drums coming in with the chorus, with like the um, hitting the crash cymbal and the fours. And yeah, it was okay. It was all right. I mean, I'm being quite charitable there. It was all right. And maybe Kanye was was actually correct in his assessment. He was just a dick about it, though, you know, in the way that he, he manages to be all the time, in addition to being not very good at music. Anyway, uh, 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 shut up. Okay, that was fine. It sounded like very immature version, which I guess is to be expected, considering that she was, like, what, 20 at the time or something? So, okay, you can get a pass on this one, but... Yeah, not great. I think that's the earliest one we're going to hear, the earliest Taylor Swift track we're going to hear in this chart. So, mm, yeah, I'm going to go back and... In fact, I wonder what the... There's a new version of this one. There's a Taylor's version, re-recorded version. Maybe I'll listen to that after this. We can't for this particular segment. We've got to crack on. Track number six in the chart is from 1989, which is the album that got me into Taylor Swift and it's called Wildest Dreams. I definitely have heard this one, but not for a while. So let's take a listen. So 989 was also produced by Shellback and Max Martin as well as Taylor Swift. And when I said before that I wasn't sure about how much she got involved with the production obviously that was a dumb thing to say because she co-produced everything so uh like i said i don't know anything about music i'm fucking dumb um so okay max martin and shellback <sighs> with the stuff on red as i said during those two tracks that we heard from it like those were some pretty <sighs> some I, I didn't like the production on those tracks it was too obvious it's too by the numbers two like two like obvious little gimmicks like you've heard a million times before and just quite unimaginative on 1989 the production is great and quite unusual like this track is it's just a very straightforward pop song a very good pop song but very straightforward but they make it into this kind of steppers track almost it's got this 4-4 double time 4-4 and it really sounds like a steppers beat which is really quite unusual it's almost like an interlude but it's I mean it's not at all clearly it's like track 9 3 minutes 40 but that's the kind of feel it has I don't know it's it's definitely not well, I mean, I remember listening to this album for the first time and getting to that track and thinking, that's a weird track. That's a weird tune. The way they've done that is just quite weird. And there's quite a lot of stuff on this album which is unusual. There's a couple of very straightforward ones, but there is some very unusual stuff too. And I think that counts as an unusual pop record, just the way the production is. But... Yeah, great song. I mean, that's that's Taylor Swift in a nutshell. Good Taylor Swift. Like real kind of, like I said, it could be in an 80s teen movie, plucking at the heartstrings. 
in a really good way. But yeah, interesting one. Interesting one. All right, we're up to number five. This is off the Reputation album, which came after 1989, and I think I listened to it at the time and thought it was quite rubbish. So I don't know what this track's going to be like. I forgot to mention the streaming numbers as well for that last one. 1.17 billion streams. The last one, this has 1.185 billion. Decent. Fair enough. Let's take it into this. Look what you made me do from the reputation. Yeah, not very good, that, I don't think. So yeah, like I said, this is the album that came after 1989. And... I definitely flicked through it over time and just thought, hmm, this is quite boring. This is quite lame. And like I said about the production on 1989, it was sufficiently interesting to kind of draw me in and sort of engage. And like that track really feels thrown together, not in a good way. <laughs> like the right said Fred guys have got writing credits for this because they basically it's a sort of reinterpretation of of that track kind of I'm quite sure where that comes from but i guess i don't know if they sued or something but i mean yeah i couldn't really hear it but like jack antonoff producing and it's got this kind of like 808e drum pattern fucking around with the the release on the snare and stuff which is all in mono and it just sounds, it just sounds quite shit, to be honest. And I ha- I'm honest <laughs> on, on Singles Club. <laughs> yeah, just really quite lame. I was, a, yeah, there's a bit where like it all breaks down and she says, she's like supposedly on the phone and she says, because she's dead. Which is kind of implying, look what you made me do. She's dead. I mean, is she talking about killing herself? I don't know. Either way, I mean, this was really average i don't know i mean i guess like like the way the, the the reason that it got played the reason why people like it i guess is because the chorus does something different so it's when the chorus comes in it's just drums and vocals which is something different and it probably works really well live but like i said the drums sound quite shit and the whole thing just doesn't sound great generally i mean that's a hook i guess and you can imagine all the sort of teenage girls singing that or whoever Taylor Swift's fan base is it's got to be teenage girls right it must be but yeah I just no not for me not for me Clive I'm afraid okay number four is Love Story oh it's another one from the Fearless album so this is an old one too Love Story let's give this a listen shall we 1.528 billion Okay, that was pretty similar to that other one from Fearless, which was called, hang on, You Belong With Me. It's all power pop, kind of big drums in the chorus kind of thing, like exactly the same. And it even does the key change in the last chorus, the Backstreet Boys special. Um, Yeah, move it up a tone 
<laughs> that's the oldest trick in the book get up off the stools lads kind of thing and yeah i was expecting to like these more i have to be honest it's quite a lot of average stuff in here this is yeah i'd be interested to hear the new version i don't know to what extent they just re-recorded it like note for note they probably did and it's basically just a kind of money exercise right um which is fine I'm not judging it's totally fine totally understandable someone else owns your masters and you want to record new masters of your songs then that's cool i understand that anyway generally quite boring of a song and i don't know i mean it was ages ago and she was really young and it's like the the country thing is, is really there in your face i mean this must have been played just zillions of times on commercial radio in america right it actually actually reminded me of a uh oh man i was yeah listening to this reminded me of an overheard conversation <laughs> that i had i was in los angeles playing a show years and years ago it must be it's probably around it must have been around 2010 it was definitely around the era because i was definitely playing i remember playing hive mango at that show yeah it must have been 2010 because i'm um, just as a sidebar i played that show and it was with marianne hobbs and plastician at the roxy i think on sunset strip i'm pretty sure that's what it was anyway um and i, I played first and then plastician and marianne hobbs did their thing and the, some dude i think it was the promoter yeah the promoter came up to me afterwards and was like yeah man you had him dancing with chill out music I was like, fuck. I thought I was playing dubstep, but <laughs> apparently not. Anyway, that wasn't the story that I wanted to tell. So I was having breakfast the next morning. And I had terrible jet lag. So I woke up at like 5 a.m. and went and had breakfast in the hotel restaurant, which was like in Hollywood, um, outdoors, great view of the city. And on the next table, there was a meeting going on between a record label guy a singer and what was obviously her mother and the singer was like i don't know she must have been i don't know 17 or 18 or something and they were talking about taylor swift or rather they were talking about the mother and the a and r guy were talking about you know, how they could build this young singer's career and it transpired that this singer was from canada and he was talking about, I just remember him saying, yeah, she needs some of Taylor Swift's attitude. And the mother said something and the guy goes, yeah, but she's got that Canadian attitude. We need some like Taylor Swift attitude. I was just like, fucking hell, this is the wrong end of the music industry. That's just horrible. I had no idea where that person went. Maybe she's really famous now. I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. It's possible definitely possible but i was just like oh god i want to be sick just like the thought of being a major label nr just ugh, bleh. anyway that's a aside lengthy aside which has nothing to do with what we're talking about so we are in the top three of this chart the last three tunes and two of them i know at the back of my hand one of them i've never heard before and is the one that i'm worried about i mentioned before that i was worried about a tune and that's, that's the one that i'm worried about so that's number two, but we've got number three first. And it's Shake It Off from 1989. 
So let's give it a go. So there are very few pop records in the history of pop music which are as good as that. And I know a lot of people don't like it, but just objectively, that is such a great record. Like everything about that record. The song is a great song. The lyrics are just fantastically good. Like that's the first single off the album. And if you're coming to something coming to a new project it's like when Eminem does this kind of like I guess who's back kind of thing it's one of those real kind of like fuck you kind of <laughs> lyrical themes and it just works so so well but the the track the production is just absolutely on the money like it's just perfect absolutely perfect the little horn line so cool the drums like live drums but sounding super like on point and yeah it just builds up something new comes in every chorus it gets louder it gets kind of like you know more full and it's just brilliant just a brilliant brilliant song brilliant record and deserves to be as big as it was is i mean <laughs> so a sidebar on this this was I think the video to this, I think, was the first big cultural appropriation row, if I recall correctly. I'm fairly sure the video to this is quite questionable in some respects. I mean, I've got myself into all kinds of trouble talking about cultural appropriation over the years and said some things that people really don't like. But I think this kind of cultural appropriation, i.e., <laughs> well, let's not go into details, but I think there is such a thing as cultural appropriation being like not not great. <laughs> and that video was uh, was an example of it, I think, if I recall correctly. But yeah, let's say about that the better. We're not reviewing the video here. We're reviewing the song. And the song is fucking just next level. Next level good. Incredibly good. Okay, two more. This is the one I was worried about. It's called I Don't Want to Live Forever, and it is a duet with Zayn Malik. Mm, okay, so it's not from a Taylor Swift album. It's from the soundtrack to Fifty Shades Darker, came out in 2017, written by Taylor Swift, produced by Jack Antonoff. Okay, let's just fucking listen to it. Let's, let's hear how this sounds. I don't know why. I don't know why I've got bad vibes about this, but I'm worried. Let's take a listen. It wasn't quite as bad as I was thinking it might be. But Zayn Malik is just a total fucking non-entity. And frankly, One Direction were just a non-entity in of themselves. Harry Styles is quite average. I think Harry Styles sums up the music industry, the success of Harry Styles, the success of One Direction, sum up how shit the last 10 years were of music. Just bullshit. Absolute bullshit. And the way this works is Zayn does the first verse. And it's similar to, I forget which Biggie track it is, but the one, the Biggie track with Jay-Z. And Jay-Z does the first verse. And then 
When Biggie comes in, it's just embarrassing how much better he is. Like this the different level of delivery and charisma coming through on the record, like to such a ridiculous extent. I mean, I'm surprised that Jay-Z even allowed that to go out. I mean, he probably <laughs> didn't have quite the same ego at the time that he does now. But this was similar to that. So as soon as Taylor gets on the mic, it's just a different level, really, of performance. And like I said, just the charisma coming through is just on another level. And it's just a bit embarrassing that Zayn sings the chorus at the same octave as she does because it's just like <laughs> I mean mm, yeah I don't know man it's just it's not very <laughs> at, the, at the risk of sounding prehistoric it's just not very masculine you can't imagine Frank Sinatra doing that can you I mean just <laughs> oh man I'm down on music in the last 10 years I really think it was a bad decade for music that last one really bad yeah i've said this before whatever i'm not gonna moan about it but yeah this was just pretty pretty lame and like the production was kind of okay i think jack antonoff production on this chart has been not great definitely not as good as the max martin stuff but this was probably the best of the bunch without that being a particularly high bar to clear so yeah, look, I'm not going to complain that much. It was a bit, <laughs> not going to complain that much, having just massively complained. All right, okay, we've got one more to do. It is from 1989, and it's called Blank Space. Let's give it a listen. Yeah, so that's... The best one, probably, of 1989. And certainly in terms of like the singles. I, mean, I really like Style as well. Maybe Style's my favourite one, actually. But yeah, this is just an awesome record. Again, like uh, Shake It Off, but it's better than Shake It Off, definitely. It's got the similar sort of like self-referential vocal thing going on. Some really clever lines some really cool like sounding lines if you know what I mean like she's really painting like a vivid picture here and it yeah it just absolutely works lyrically in every kind of a way manages to be cool basically which I was pretty surprised by anyway the first time I heard it I was like mm, okay wow I remember, I remember hearing this on the radio loads of times not knowing it was Taylor Swift and being like fuck what is this track and yeah, finding out what it was and being, yeah, pretty surprised, pretty impressed. And then listening to the album, being even more impressed. But like, I mean, production wise as well, it's that interesting poppy thing, which is clearly very difficult to do and is not present and correct on quite a lot of her other stuff. And you know, even with the same producers like Max Martin and his mate. But on this album, they just absolutely nail it. Absolutely nail it. Like, it's just so well put together without being gimmicky. I think that's the thing. Like that's the difference. Like, they don't resort to lame tricks on this album. Like, the songs are strong enough 
and they put enough into the individual parts that they don't need like those just lame pop tropes going on every now and then which they definitely have on those tunes from Red. Anyway, yeah, this is just great. It's just a great song from a great album, really. I should say that, like, I was expecting to like the tracks in this chart more. I've been pretty down on quite a lot of them. Like, my favourite albums are 989 and then, like, Folklore, I think is just awesome, awesome record. And I like the new one, too, a lot. But I think... I was surprised. I was surprised. I don't know, but like folklore is is quite a lot different, and I think just really great, really really great, but in a kind of down temporary kind of a way, which is why they're not going to show up in a, you know, the top ten all time Taylor tunes. Anyway, this was fun. I haven't really discovered why I like the music. I mean, well, that's the thing. I, I was expecting to kind of be introduced to new good stuff but then why would i why would i think that this is a commercially successful chart chart of commercially successful tracks which i tend to not like so i don't know why i'm surprised about this but blank space being at number one that's one of the best tunes so fair fucks basically yeah anyway we're done if you've stuck with this episode all the way through then (laughs) then well done to you If you're not on Patreon, then leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this. Follow the Spotify playlist. I might put some Taylor Swift tracks in there this week. There's a link to that playlist in the show notes. And join us in the Discord. If you want to criticise my take on Taylor Swift tunes, then join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord to join that Discord server. And um, yeah, I will see you in there. And I will also see you same time, same place next week for the next episode of a Not A Diving podcast back on the regular episode structure next week. I'll see you then. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.